Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Got Thanksgiving week coming up, so hopefully you've uh, laid your stretchy pants out uh, on Wednesday so that you're ready for the marathon on, uh, on Thursday. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to uh, have some time off uh, this week to be with friends and family. We're going to be in the book of Genesis today, Genesis chapter 15. And so if you would like to follow along with us, you can go there to Genesis 15. If you don't have a Bible but would like to follow along, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks in front of you. And Genesis is the very first book in the Bible, so if you start paging your way forward, you should find Genesis 15 fairly quickly. There's a story in the Bible that many of uh, you with any sort of Bible knowledge are no doubt familiar with. It comes from Mark chapter 9. And in this story in Mark chapter 9, there is a father who is seeking relief for his son who is possessed by a demon. And the way that demon possession shows up is the boy is unable to speak uh, there are times the Bible describes where he experiences symptoms that we would describe as a seizure. He's, his body seizes up, he's foaming at the mouth, but the demon also uh, uh, casts this boy into harm's way. He'll, he'll, be, he'll throw himself into the fire or he'll throw himself into water and this father is desperate to, to see this condition for his boy relieved. And so he brings the, the boy to Jesus' disciples, but they're not able to have any success. And so finally the father brings the, the boy to Jesus, and he asks Jesus to have compassion on this boy if he can do anything for him. And I always try to imagine the, the, the scenes and the dialogue in, in my mind's eye as I'm reading. And, and one of the interesting things that Jesus says uh, in response to this father who's brought his, his son to him asking for healing is, is Jesus says, if? It's almost like Jesus is indignant that this father has, has taken the time to bring his son for, for healing, for relief, and then phrases it in terms of, if you can do something about this, could you, could you give it a shot? And Jesus responds, if, and then he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. And then the father says something that many of us have thought about and heard before, that a very famous phrase, he says, Lord, I believe. But then what does he say? Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. The father was acknowledging the reality that his faith, which he had expressed in bringing his son to the disciples and then to Jesus for, for healing, he's acknowledging that, that his faith is thoroughly mixed with unbelief. Most of Jesus' followers experience doubt to one degree or another. And if any followers of Jesus tell you that they aren't, they're probably lying. We experience doubt even though we have faith. It's probably in all likelihood for most of us, it's faith that brought you here this morning. 
You believe God, you have put your faith in Christ, you believe that you believe that God's people have been called to gather for worship and give him the praise that is due to his name, but but there are are roots of doubt in your heart. There is unbelief mixed with belief. Which is why throughout the Bible God in his grace has given his people signs. He's given them things to hold on to when we are struggling to believe, when we're struggling, struggling to believe that his promises are true. We've seen one of those signs already in the book of Genesis when, when God tells Noah after he and his family exit the ark, he tells him, I'm never again going to destroy the earth with a flood. And as a sign, I'm going to put my rainbow across the sky to remind me and you that this is never going to happen again. But of course, this isn't the only time. God comes to Moses when he's living in the desert, exiled from from both his people and from the nation that he's grown up in. And God appears to Moses and tells him, I'm going to use you to lead those people out of slavery in Egypt and back into the promised land. And, And Moses' basic response was, really? Me? I don't think you maybe remember, but I've got a murder charge out on me right now, one. And another thing, I'm not exactly a great public speaker. I don't don't have a way with words, so you're telling me that you want me to go back and you're going to use me. We've been been enslaved for four centuries now. You're going to use me to get us out. And God gives Moses signs, doesn't he? He gives him all sorts of signs, one one of which is uh, a staff that he can throw on the ground and will turn into a serpent. Okay, and then we've got somebody like Gideon. Gideon is, is threshing wheat in a wine press. And I don't know much about farming or wheat husbandry or vineyard stuff. But I know that you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. But, but Gideon is so afraid of Midian because the Midianites are in charge of the land and have the people under their thumb. He's, he's so afraid that he's threshing wheat in a wine press. And the Lord appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, oh, am I, the, I cannot be the only person in this wine press because there's no way he can be talking to me. But God is talking to Gideon, and God is telling Gideon, I'm going to use you to rescue my people from the clutches of Midian. And Gideon says, that's great, but I'm going to need some signs. I'm going to need some proof before unbattle-tested me walks out there into a battle to try to release people. I'm going to have people following me. And God graciously gives him several signs. Signs help us with the help my unbelief part of I believe. I believe, but there's, there's doubt mixed in. And signs are things that God often gives his people to give them something to hold on to. Signs are, are things that can be perceived with the senses. They are visible. They are sometimes even tangible. And as we return to Genesis chapter 15 this morning, we're going to see that Abram right now is at a place where he is struggling with doubt. If Abram could have have read the New Testament, and he couldn't, but if he could have, 
I believe, help my unbelief, probably would have resonated with him. Abram has been the recipient of some pretty fantastic promises. Now we've, gone over these, we've gone over these promises again and again, but they can basically be divided into two categories. God has promised him a people and a place, a lineage and a land. He's going to have descendants that are so numerous that he can look out at the night sky and, and, and see that they're going to be comparable to that. If he could only count those stars, that's what his descendants are going to be. So, God, so Abram is the, is the possessor of these great promises, but there's a, a big problem in Genesis chapter 15, and that's the fact that God has appeared to him, he's given him these promises, but these promises just don't seem to be coming true. At least they don't seem to be coming true to the level that they were promised. And so we see Abram at the beginning of the chapter believing that he is just going to have to settle. As doubt creeps in, he's kind of reconciling himself to the fact that maybe it's not going to be as good as I thought it was going to be. And I was going to have a descendant, it was going to be my own son, but I guess that's going to be Eliezer. We see, saw at the beginning of the chapter a person who's, who's not even a, a blood relative in his family. He's the one that's going to, to, to gain all of Abram's estate. Maybe I'm just going to have to settle for that. But in this chapter, we saw a pattern last week that's going to continue this week. We see, we see the pattern of God making a promise, Abram expressing his doubts about that promise, and then God providing a reassurance to Abram about the promise that he has made. And that pattern repeats itself twice. The first time is in verses 1 through 6 where Abram expresses his doubt about the descendants that he's going to have. But now in verses 7 to 21, we're going to see him express his doubts once again about the land, the promised land, the place that God has, has given him. So let's begin in verse 7 with God's promise. The Bible says this in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. The Lord is appearing to Abram and he's reminding him I'm the one who brought you from Ur of the Chaldees. I'm the one who brought you from modern-day Iraq to make this 1,000-mile circuitous journey to bring you right here because I want to give you this land. He's already told Abram, walk, walk the whole property, see the boundaries, look north and south and east and west and know that all of this is for you. And the Lord is reminding him of this, but Abram has doubts. Look at verse 8. But he, Abram, said, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, why would Abram be asking that question? How am I to know that I'm going to possess the land? Because isn't Abram in the land? Well, he is. Abram is in the land. The problem is not that he isn't in the land. The problem is that he doesn't yet possess the land. He's in it, but he doesn't possess it. 
And we know that he doesn't possess it because in the last verses of this chapter, verses 18 to 21, God says this, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. There's a whole lot of ites that are in the land right now. And as as Abram looks around and he's told he's going to possess the land, all he can see is not the land that he's going to possess, but all the ites that are in the land that he can possess. And so he's asking the question that any of us would have been asking, okay, but how am I going to know that you're really going to give me what you've promised? Because we've been talking about this for about 10 years now. And I, I'm still not seeing it. In fact, I don't, I'm not even a major player in the land right now. So, so I'm not criticizing Abram for his doubt. I think all of us would have some doubts in this situation. But God gives him a reassurance. So we're seeing that pattern of, of God making a promise, Abram expressing his doubt, and God giving him a reassurance. And God is about to give Abram assurance in the form of a a ceremony, in the form of a sign that is going to be a little strange for us when we first read it. Because it's coming to us from a very different culture, very different time, very different place. But let's look at how God reassures him beginning in verse 9 of Genesis 15. God said to him, he's just asked the question, how am I going to know that I possess it? God says to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down to the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Next, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay, so this is, a, this is some interesting stuff. <laughs> Abram says, Lord, how, how am I supposed to know that I'm going to possess the land. And God says, here's a list of animals to go get. So Abram goes and gets the animals and then cuts them in half. And I just want you to think about the fact that uh, we're, we're working with a highly compressed timeline here. Um, that's not a fast thing that you do. I've never field-dressed a deer or anything like that, but... I've had friends show me pictures of them field-dressing deer, and if you've ever hunted and done that, uh, it takes a considerable amount of time. 
And now he's got these five animals that he's got to cut in half. So we're talking about a a, a multi-hour commitment during the day. And then after he's cut the animals in half, it gets even stranger because he basically lays the animals out in halves and creates a center aisle between them, just like the center aisle we've got here in our, in our church building this morning. Okay. Then the sun sets, because Abram's been at this all day, and God uh, 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 comes to him as a, a deep sleep. So Abram is put into this dream state, this great and dreadful darkness comes over him, and the Bible tells us something interesting, because remember, why, we don't understand all of this yet, but why did this happen in the first place? All of this strange stuff that's just happened is God's response to Abram saying, how am I going to know? I've got my doubts. How am I going to know that I'm going to possess the land and the promises that you've given me are going to come true? And so the, the Lord says, uh, uh, know for certain... That your offspring, okay, so far so good because these are the questions we're asking. Know for certain, and we're expecting that that to be followed by, know for certain that your offspring are indeed going to possess this land. Okay, you're going to get everything that I've promised to you. And God does that in a way, but in a long way. Because what God follows up know for certain with is the descendants that you don't yet even have one of know for certain that they're actually going to be enslaved by another country for four centuries. Feel like we're going backwards here. Abram's looking around and saying, how am I supposed to know that I'm going to possess the land? And God says, well, of course you're going to possess it. In roughly four centuries, after your people have been enslaved by what we know is going to be Egypt, then they're going to come back and be in the land. So, I assure you, I assure you, Abram, my promises are going to come true, but they're going to unfold over the course of a long period of time. In other words, Abram, the things that I promised to you are not the kinds of things that are going to take place in your lifetime. You're going to begin being the recipient of these promises, but, but I'm doing something not only in your life and in, in your descendants' life, I'm doing something in human history human history level stuff here that's going to unfold. And I'm giving you the, the 400 year plan, but, but there's, there's, there's a couple thousand year plan too. Okay. So that's what's happened so far. Now look at verse 17, if you will. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Told you, some interesting stuff here. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Okay, God is reaffirming here, I'm going to give you this land and I'm even going to remind you about what a couple of the boundaries of this land are going to be. But what exactly is going on here? Because we've got animals who've been brought in, cut in half, laid on sides, center aisle. Now we've got a flaming torch and fire pot passing between these halves of the animals. What in the world is happening here? 
Well, the key to understanding this is the Lord's declaration in verse 18, because he tells Abram, I am making a covenant with you. And what's happening here is linked to the fact that God is making a covenant with Abram. What is a covenant? Well, a covenant is an agreement between two or more parties. And in this agreement between two or more parties, there are several features, but we'll, we'll simplify it to say that there are responsibilities given to one or more of those parties. So things that, things that must be done. There are benefits that come to one or more parties from the keeping of those responsibilities. And then a third aspect of a covenant is the consequences, the penalties that occur if one or both of those parties do not fulfill their responsibilities and thus forfeit the benefits. Okay, so let me just say it in in three simple words. There are responsibilities, there are benefits, And there are penalties for failing to keep the responsibilities that would thus forfeit the benefits. That's that's a covenant. And that's what God is doing here. The covenant between God and Abram is actually spread out between chapters 12, 15, and 17. If you were with us when we were walking through Genesis chapter 12, you'll know that the, fo- the covenantal focus in that chapter was the blessings that would come to Abram. Okay? God, God doesn't start talking about the penalties or responsibilities or anything like that. God just appears to the pagan uh, Abram going about doing his thing and says, Hey, I'm going to bless you with all kinds of blessings. Then, in chapter 15, we're seeing uh, the, the, the consequences or the penalties for failure to keep the covenant. And in verse 17, or in chapter 17, we're going to see uh, some of the responsibilities that God imposes upon Abram. But as I said, it is here in chapter 15 where we see the penalties that are built into this covenant. And what we have here with these animal pieces cut in in half and an aisle between them and, and the fire passing between them is a covenant ceremony that would have been familiar to people in their day. And that's where the animal halves come in. You see, the, the language that's used in our English translations, for instance, in verse 18, the Lord says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. That's the way it's translated for us in English. But the Hebrew word there is actually cut. When covenantal language is used uh, in the Old Testament, oftentimes that's the language that's used. I'm not going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to cut a covenant with with you and that cutting imagery and making a covenant is represented tangibly and physically in the animal halves being laid to the side with a center aisle between them that's what's going on here now when covenants were use a word ratified right then or or everybody signed on the dotted line and notarized officialized is what we're what we're talking about when, when covenants were ratified back then, there would often be 
something that I'm going to uh, share with you, a term that will make you sound smart in front of your friends. But don't say we never do anything for you here. What we, what we see here is something called a self-maledictory oath. Self-maledictory oath. So if you're ever having a conversation with somebody and you're in Genesis 15 and you say something like, well, I, in my opinion, what's going on here is a self-maledictory oath. <laughs> you're going to sound fantastic in front of your friends and family around the Thanksgiving dinner table. But what is a malediction? A malediction is a curse. Malediction is a curse. And so a self-maledictory oath is a person accepting a curse for failing to keep the terms of the covenant. That's what a self-maledictory oath is. It's basically passing between those animals and saying, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, I don't keep my end of the bargain or the agreement, may this be done to me. That's what's happening here. Now, we obviously have contracts in our day as a parallel. If you've ever purchased a house, then you know that when you go to the closing of the house, one of the things that's going to happen is somebody's going to wheel a wheelbarrow in of paperwork for you to read. And you're going to spend the next 72 hours signing papers. And you're going to think you're going to read those papers, but after the fifth one, you're just going to, you don't know what you're signing. Just get me out of here so that this can be signed and we can be done. But what's happening there is a contract and this agreement between multiple parties. You're agreeing to purchase this house. There's a bank involved. There's all kinds of other people involved. And each person is responsible to keep their end of the bargain, which is why signatures are required and witnesses and all sorts of things like that. And, of course, there are also penalties. If you wake up one morning and say, man, I'm looking at my budget and the house payment takes up so much. I think I'm going to cut that out to make room for other things. You can't do that because that is that there's a, there's a penalty built in if you don't keep your end of the bargain. The bank can take your house from you. Imagine being at the imagine then getting at the end of the thing and the person facilitating says we got just one more thing and somebody brings in a dead goat. This is the part everyone has trouble with, <laughs> cutting it in half. We don't do that. Okay, we've got signatures and notaries and witnesses. But this is a this is a bloody visceral reminder of the seriousness of what is taking place here. This isn't just this isn't just dash through the signatures and get somebody to put their little notary stamp on it. You're looking down at the ground at death and the smell of death. It is a visceral experience. And I want you to notice something interesting here. Who doesn't walk between the pieces? Abram. Abram never passes between the pieces. What passes between the pieces? This flaming fire pot. Wonder what that could symbolize. Well, how does God oftentimes throughout the Bible make his presence known? 
when Moses be- appears before a bush, it is not soaking wet. It is burning. At Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the disciples are in the upper, this upper room and they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out, how does the Holy Spirit's presence manifest itself? One of the ways it's described is as tongues of fire, God the Spirit's presence. The book of Hebrews tells us that our God is a consuming fire. Okay, God manifests his presence oftentimes in both the Old Testament and the New through the imagery of fire. And it is God himself and only God who passes between the animal halves in this ceremony, taking upon himself the self-maledictory oath The curse upon himself, may this be done to me if you do not receive every single promise I have made for you, Abram. Abram is is, is struggling because because he wants all the promises now. And we don't blame him. I want all of God's promises now. But that's not the way God works God's plan unfolds out of, over time in our lives as, as his promises are fulfilled to us. And so what we have here is, in essence, the Lord formalizing the covenant that he made and taking the penalty, the self-maledictory oath on himself because Abram has said, how will I know that I'm going to possess the land? Okay. I said then last week that the truth that I wanted us to to see from this chapter is this. God's people receive God's gifts by faith. God's people, and Abram, Abram is kind of our template that we're looking at, but God's people receive God's gifts by faith. And I said that there were two gifts that are given to Abram in this chapter, chapter 15, that are, are just as true for him as they are for us today. The first one we looked at last week, it's, it's, the, it's that God's people receive God's gift of righteousness by faith. One of the important verses in this chapter is verse 6, where, where as God has given Abram the reassurance of his promise, the Bible tells us that Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. God, God didn't look at Abram and said, man, you are doing a great job at being righteous and just knocking it out of the park every day. He said, no, no, Abram believed God and God said, I will count that as if you had been righteous. And what we have here is this little jewel in the path, I said last week, that gets polished up by the New Testament writers so that we see the doctrine of justification by faith. The fact that all human beings are brought into right relationship with God, not on the basis of their works, but on the basis of the works of Christ, which they receive by faith. God says, I'm going to forgive your sins and, and, and count you and consider you righteousness simply if you have the open hand of faith to receive what I have for you. Okay, Abram receives that gift, and the same is true for us in our day. But not only do God's people receive God's gift of righteousness by faith, but what I'm going to see in our remaining time this morning is that God's people also receive God's covenant blessings by faith. 
Okay, so we don't get in by faith and stay in by what we have, by our works. Okay, it's, it's, it's faith from first to last, faith from front to back. And in the words of Galatians 3, you know, have you, having, started with the, having started with the Spirit, are you going to continue on in the flesh? No, we receive the gift of righteousness by faith, and we continue to receive all that God has for us by the same faith. God had made all of these promises of covenant blessings to Abram that he was going to receive by faith. And, and Abram has had some remarkable blessings promised to him. I mean, put yourself in his shoes and just think about the fact that, wait, God appeared to him and said, I'm going to do this, 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 and this for you. Just just follow me and I'm going to take you to I'm going to take you to a land that is going to be your own possession as far as you can see it's yours. God makes some spectacular promises to Abram, but let me ask you a question. Do you know that you possess greater promises? You right now, where you're sitting in your seat right now, are in possession of greater promises than the ones that God made to Abram. And you say, hmm, okay. Prove it. I'm glad you asked. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, the Bible says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Why? Since it is enacted on better promises. The promises that you have in the new covenant are better the Bible says, and the promises of the old. And the author of Hebrews is going to go on in the next few verses, verses 8 to 12, to quote the promises of the new covenant from, Gen uh, from uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. And let me read those things to you. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What are some of the promises that we've just read about in the new covenant? We talk about 
Uh, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, one of the things that we read are the words of Jesus where he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, so what are some of the blessings that we just read that we receive in the new covenant? Well, the new covenant promises now to fully and finally deal with our sin. Under the administrations of the old covenants, there were offerings and sacrifices for sin that needed to be made day after day, week after week, year after year. There were priests, a, a never-ending carousel of priests who, who would do their best as mediators between God and man to join heaven and earth. But they, And as good a job as they did, it was not a perfect job because they themselves were sinful people. But in the new covenant, both uh, the, the sacrifice and the priesthood are combined in a single person. Jesus is the perfect priest, the perfect mediator who links heaven and earth, God and man, in a way that is inseparable forever. And he does that not by bringing some sort of offering external to himself to the table, but by offering himself on the cross as the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we no longer have any need for priests or other mediators or sacrifices because of the work of Christ in the new covenant. Another promise of the new covenant is that God has is, is that we're going to have God's law on our hearts. That that's a way of, of speaking about the fact that that God is going to do something so that His law, His ways, become internalized within us, so that there's a, a very real sense in which they are woven into our very DNA, so that we walk in the ways of God and we do the works of God and we love God. Another promise of the new covenant is he is going to take our hearts of stone, these, these cold, hard hearts of stone, and he's going to give us a heart transplant and give us a heart of flesh so that we love the way that we should. We, we, we forgive the way that we should. We, have, we, are, we all become people after God's own heart. Ezekiel, speaking of the new covenant in chapter 36, promises that he's going to put a new spirit within us. And one of the things that we, we learn as we move into the New Testament is that when a person is born again, when a person comes to Christ, God puts his own Holy Spirit within us so that each one of us is a walking temple filled with the presence of God himself. In the new covenant, God promises that there is a day coming when we will no longer need to share the good news, when we will no longer need to, to, to urge people to know the Lord because there will be a universal knowledge and love of God. And of course, Hebrews quotes Jeremiah saying that in the new covenant, God promises mercy towards your iniquities. In the, in the new covenant, God promises that he will remember your sins no more. They will be cast into the deepest reaches of the sea, separated from you as far as the east is from the west. That is why the promises are better. So you believe that, right? I'm, I'm assuming most of us believe that. 
Yet I think in many ways we often find ourselves in the position of this father saying, I believe, but I got some unbelief mixed in. And I need help with that. Many of us can identify with Abram. Like Abram, we have our doubts because God has given us these great and precious promises. God gave Abram these great and precious promises. But the truth be told, we're not experiencing the fullness of these promises yet, are we? I mean, yes and no. So God has promised me a heart of flesh. But man, does it sometimes feel like I've got that same old cold stone heart. That if you were to, to, to wrap your, your fist against my chest, it would sound like you're, you're hitting stone. And I feel like I've got a cold, dark, hard heart that's dragging me down because if we're honest, and we might as well be, you don't wake up every morning delighted that you get to spend time with your Creator and Savior. And so you read the Bible. And you walk away from it 30 seconds later, you get in the car to go to work, and you cannot even remember the scripture that you were in. You don't even remember the reference. Or you settle down to pray, and you sit there and think, what am I going to pray about? And you start praying, you get, a good, you get a good start into it, and 10 minutes later, you're thinking about something totally unrelated, and you're, you've almost forgotten that where you are, because our hearts are cold. Or maybe you gather together for worship with God's people on a Sunday morning and you see that there are people nearby you as the word is being preached and they're taking good notes and they're saying amen and they're, they're really feeling it. Or you look across the aisle while people are singing and someone has their, their hands lifted or someone else has, has tears streaming down their face and you are almost jealous of them because you think, I'd, I'd like to feel that for a minute. My heart feels cold. God has put his spirit within us so that we are living, walking temples. And yet, I feel that rather than walking in the spirit, as Galatians tells me, and keeping in step with the spirit, as Galatians speaks of, I'm more in Ephesians chapter 4 territory where I'm grieving the spirit. The Spirit tells me to put away all wrath and malice and slander and gossip, to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. But man, what's coming out of my mouth ain't that. I make a lousy temple. Or maybe you see the promise of God remembering your sins no more. 
And yet, you feel deeply what David says in Psalm 51. My sins are ever before me. I look to the left, I look to the right, I look inside, I look outside, and all I can see is my sin. And I cannot imagine how God wouldn't see it too. So we've received these promises, and, and God is doing a work in us. He's put a spirit within us, and he's, he's given us a new heart. And we keep grabbing the stone one. And he's told us that he's not going to remember our sins, and yet we're pretty sure he's remembering the sins. And, and so then we get like Abram, and we say, God, I need some sort of proof. I need some sort of, because I can't see the spirit within me. I can't see my heart. I can't see or touch the fact that you're going to remember my sins no more. What, what can you do to show me, in the words of Abram, that I'm going to possess these things? And here's the good news. God has given you a sign. God does not say, bring me a, bring me a, a ram, bring me a goat, Bring me some other kind of animal. God says, I have given you my son. When we are plagued with doubt about God's promises, we must remember that his promises are signed and sealed and delivered in the blood of his own son. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 20, which is not going to be on the screen for you, but it says this. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You have been given some great promises, and those promises are in the process of being unfolded, not only in your heart, but in the heart of people around you, and in the arc of human history. Abram doesn't have everything now, and neither do you, but let me tell you, you're going to have everything that's coming to you, and if you want proof, look at the cross. It matters to God that much. It's so certain that he signs it in the blood of his son who takes on himself the self-maledictory oath, not for his failures, but ours. Maybe there's somebody here this morning and you feel like your sin is ever before you. That there is no way that you can get out from under the burden and the weight and the guilt of your sin. And you know what? There isn't through what you do. But the good news of the gospel, the blessings of the new covenant, is that through the work of Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection, you can be counted or considered righteous by God, not by coming to him and saying, is this enough? But by looking to the work of Christ and saying, I believe that's enough. And you've told me I can have it. And if that's you this morning, our prayer is that you, as we pray here, 
would turn in faith and repentance to be saved and to receive that good work of God in our hearts that he is going to completely perform until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, all of us as, as Christians, those of us who are Christians here, would probably be willing to admit that our, our faith is mixed with doubt. We thank you that the, the strength of your grip on us is not dependent of, on the strength of our grip on you. No one can snatch us from your hand. And so I pray that you would help us to look again at the, the cross to see how serious you are about making sure we possess everything you've promised. If there is someone here who has never been born again, who has not received these great and precious promises, would you give them the heart to repent and believe the good news of Jesus today? It's in his name we pray it. Amen.